Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to focus just on the first nine verses. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him. On the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek. And utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman. Child and infant. Ox and sheep. Camel and donkey. And Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set up an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt, He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And we're not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. 
and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words, because because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please... Honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So yeah, I, I got through the first nine verses, and uh, I have I, I would suspect there are a few more sermons in First Samuel fifteen. Uh, it's such a rich uh, passage and a, a pivotal moment in the in the life of Israel. Pivotal moment in um, uh, God's dealing with Israel. Now we see in this Saul's, I mean Saul's sin again, and really in chapters 13 and 14, it's been a rehearsal of the sins of Saul. We've been um, progressing to this point. Um, Saul's first sin, you remember, was not waiting to sacrifice. Chapter 13, Samuel said to him, wait, I'll come. We offer the sacrifices. 
and Saul usurped the role of the priest as the king and offered those sacrifices. And then Saul's sin in chapter 14 that we, uh, that we looked at was uh, him seeking vengeance, right? He was going after his enemies, right? And he was going to put them down. And so he's seeking vengeance. And then we see it play out with Jonathan and the honey and all those and the, the vow that he placed the people under. You remember after that first sin, Samuel said, you have acted foolishly, have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, but now your kingdom shall not endure. So already he's been told that, that, um, that your kingdom is coming to an end. And then after his second sin, Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land. My father has troubled the people, the lands. The, he has placed burdens. And... Um, Remember in uh, ch- verse 37 of chapter 14 that, God, that Saul seeks after God, but God does not answer him. God is, is silent toward him. And now we come to this, this um, I would say, climactic sin of Saul's. Uh, Samuel comes to Saul with a message from the Lord. The Lord sent me, and the first thing he mentions is, you should listen to me because I'm the one who anointed you king. I'm the one that the Lord sent to anoint you king, therefore you should listen to what I have to say to you. This, this is a command that's coming from the Lord himself. Listen to me. This is serious. Um, The Lord sent me to you, now listen to the word of the Lord, he says to him. Listen. And that word keeps, that that Hebrew word keeps repeating in this chapter. Listen. Listen. Hear. Obey. They're all from the same root. Okay? So listen. Eight times in the passage. And what is the command? What what is he to, uh, what is he commanded to do? Wipe out the Amalekites. What? What? Something. Amalekites. I think, I think that's right. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> Amalek, Amalekite. Um, yeah, he's told to wipe them out. Now, there's history here, isn't there? There's history, and we get a little glimpse of it. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. And so we have to go to Deuteronomy and Exodus um, to figure out what's going on here. Exodus 17. Turn there, turn there, turn there. Open your Bibles, turn there. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Um, This is after the... um, the people thirsting and grumbling and water coming from the rock. And then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, this is at verse 8 of chapter 17. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So this is that scene where Joshua goes out to battle, Moses 
arms, when they're raised, they win, and when they're lowered, they, they, they're um, being defeated. And so, so Aaron and her hold up his arms. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sunset. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn. The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Write it down in a book. This is like, don't forget this. This needs to be written in stone, as it were, and remembered what Amalek did to the people of God, attacking them. Now you go to Deuteronomy 25, and this is Moses recounting the history of Israel, and we read this uh, twenty five seventeen through nineteen. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. How he met you along the way, intact and attacked among you all the stragglers at the rear when you were faint and weary. Here's a faint and weary people leaving Egypt. And Amalek is a scoundrel and comes up and attacks the weakest who are off in the back, straggling. When you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Amalek did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven And then it says this, you must not forget. I mean, this this would have been heavy on Israel. This would have been heavy on Joshua thinking about these commands. This would have been heavy on the subsequent generations. And now the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and says, it's time. Remember what Moses said. In Deuteronomy, remember what happened to the people as they were coming out of Egypt. Now is the time. You must not forget. And so Saul is to enact this. And the command from God is this. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And quite quickly, we are sympathetic towards Saul, aren't we? Women, infants, and all the animals, and everything. The command from God is to utterly devote all of Amalek and everything surrounding him to the ban, right? To destruction, to utter annihilation. How could God command the killing of women, children, and even infants? How do we come to terms with this? This is one of those passages that gets thrown in your face as a Christian saying, God is not just. 
Because look at the sort of things that he commands. How is this not... um, How is this not that? How do you explain this? How would you preach this? Well, what have we just learned about Amalek? What have we just learned about Amalek? He may not have. I mean, we don't know, though. All you know is he killed some at the rear. Well, we know he did not fear God, okay? He didn't have any fear of God. He was, a, he, was um, he, w- he didn't acknowledge God. He had no fear of God. And he proceeded to act against God's people um, without any fear of their God, okay? What else? What did we learn later in the passage? It says Amalek sinned. He sinned. He was a sinner. Amalek was a sinner. Um, didn't fear God. He attacked God's people. God, um, uh, and so Amalek is guilty, right? Amalek is guilty of of. Sin. He's guilty of not fearing God. He's guilty of attacking God's people. And God is just. God is a God of justice. And he has commanded the people never to forget this and that that sin would in subsequent ages be punished. He gives Amalek 300 years to repent. 300 years for the people to repent. And they have not. And so here is the command to fulfill what God has said to them previously. Write this in a book as a memorial. Recite it to Joshua that I, God, will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Now, I want to I turn to a psalm that uh, I was reading as I was out at the abortion clinic. And that's Psalm 11. But particularly verses 4 through 7. And I think this is something that we as... Um, uh, that we need to contemplate. We have a tendency to forget about the justice of God. The justice of God that as we read in the passage of Jeremiah this morning, that God loves his justice, right? He loves three things, mercy, justice, and righteousness. He loves those three things. And so his justice will be expressed And Psalm 11 says this, the Lord is in his holy, this is verse 4, Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. His eyelids tested Amalek. Okay? The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Amalek was unjust in his attack. 
Amalek was uh, wicked in attacking the, the people of God and loved violence. And so God's soul hates the violent one. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. The upright behold his face. The one who loves violence. God rains judgment down upon them. Now, this this anger, this vengeance that is the Lord's demonstrates two things. One, God's anger toward all sinners. Upon them um, will rain snares. So um, to have a problem with God commanding and executing his judgment against Amalek the sinner is to, you know, to have a problem with this command to Saul is to have a problem simply with God's justice. To think of God as a God who will, will bring justice in the end. If you have a problem with God's justice then, right, if you have a problem with this command, the command you think is unfair, you begin having a problem with God's justice and God's character And if you have a problem with God's justice, you will eventually reject the reality of hell. Well, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth eternally. And that's just a, it's always a frightening thought. It's an overwhelming thought to think of the justice of God and snares and fire and brimstone being rained down upon sinners forever, right? And so if we have a problem with this command and God executing a judgment against Amalek for attacking his people, then ultimately we'll have a problem with hell and we'll begin to concoct um, nifty doctrines like annihilation or or, um, soul sleep or, or something along those lines, just so that there's not a place for God's justice to ever be expressed eternally. And then the other thing that the anger of the Lord, the vengeance of God upon his enemies demonstrates is this. It proves his love for his people. It proves his covenantal love for his people. Right? His love is jealous. He knows the righteous and will keep them and protect them. Even, even to the point of sending his son to show mercy to them. Right? So that the, the anger of God toward his and our enemies proves his covenantal love toward his elect. Right? Does that make sense? If he... If he cozied up with our enemies, would, would we think his love is jealous? Would we think that he has uh, his people as the apple of his eye? No. No, we would not. The reality of hell proves the love of God. Is what it does, ultimately. Um, I'll skip that. Um... Then there's this point, okay, we're, we're, 
we're vamping on the fact that God has commanded that Amalek and everybody around him and the people be utterly destroyed, including infants. There's this. What God commands is always good. Okay? That seems like a, uh, a very simplistic thing, but God can do no evil. So what he commands is always good because it arises from his good character. Psalm 92.15 says, To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. No unrighteousness. No swerving, right? No like, oops, that, that wasn't so good. I may not have, uh, have done that. I may not have commanded that. He has commanded this. And therefore it is good by a whole host of other standards, right? If we don't take God and his goodness as the standard for his, his commands and our assessment of it, then we'll, we'll bring a whole host of other standards into the picture to determine whether what God has done is right, what he has commanded is right. Our sense of fairness becomes the standard. Our emotions, like our emotional response to something, well... That makes me feel uncomfortable, right? Is that going to be your standard for judging God's commands? Um, Passivism, right? We can have a doctrine of passivism and and then suddenly this seems like outlandish that God would would devote women and children to the ban. And then in the end, if we have a different standard for for, for God other than his own goodness... Uh, we would begin to accuse God of injustice and unkindness. But who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Right? That's how Paul in Romans answers a similar question. Um, Romans 9 13, he says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. On what basis? That doesn't seem fair. Right? Why would he hate Jacob? Why would he hate Amalek? What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Pure and simple. Very simple. And so, God had hardened Amalek, and now God's judgment would come against Amalek. He would not show Amalek mercy, and Saul was to carry that out. Um, Matthew Henry says on, this, on, on Amalek in, in this passage, he says, God often bears long with those who are marked for ruin. The sentence passed is not executed speedily. And remember, this is 300 years. 300 years for this, this 
300 years to repent, 300 years to begin fearing God, 300 years to, to say what I had done did not glorify God, I repent. Um, remember the ban, destroy so that they may not... In, what was the ban? Now we have to think about that. To devote to the ban was what this was called. It was to devote everything to destruction. Why did God tell them to destroy everything? Why, when they were taking the land, did God tell them to destroy everything? Do you remember what God teaches them? Why were they to do this? Well, it's in Deuteronomy 20. Destroy, and then it says this, destroy everything so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Devoted to the band so that the people don't teach you then to sin against the Lord and go after their gods. Right? That's, I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? Destroy them so they don't teach you to do what they've done in rejecting God. When we are influenced by the gods of the nation around us, we attempt to import into our service of God what he hates. Right? Rather, we are to, as it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, abhor what is evil. Abhor it. Hate it. Utterly hate what is evil. And if you've sinned, you have failed to obey that command. Because you've chosen to love that which God has hated. Right? Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And it is God who defines what that is. What is evil and what is good. God defines it. Amalek's sin, God has rejected. And Saul was to protect his people as the king. Protect his people from being taught by these wicked sinners. So this is God showing his love toward his people in protecting them from the sins of the nation surrounding them. Right? Again, it's the love of God displayed. Saul was to protect his people by fulfilling God's command. Now, interestingly, um, it appears that this is not fulfilled until Esther's time. Mordecai is a descendant of Saul's father Kish, and he overcomes Haman, the Agagite, Agag. Descendant of Agag, Esther 3.1. So that's the 5th century, and Saul was in the 11th century B.C. Five centuries that this is being, that this, and so you see that fulfillment in Deuteronomy that he, that God said he would have from generation to generation, warfare against Amalek. Now, Saul's actions, he he hears Samuel, but he does, he does not listen. Um, Matthew Henry says that Saul does his work by halves. That's what he does throughout, doesn't he? He does his work by halves. You know, halfway devoted, halfway not. Deciding, you know, claiming that he has devoted everything to the ban and yet Clearly not in defending himself. And then trying to assign good motives to himself, right? Trying to assign, look, it's for sacrifices. It's all good. Um, 
verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. The best of the oxen. All that was good. That's what they spared. Very interesting, isn't that? The despised and worthless, they destroyed. Um, Again, Matthew Henry, for Saul to think the torn and the sick, the lame and the lean, good enough for that, while he reserved for his own fields and his own table the firstlings and the fat, was really to honor himself more than to honor God. Right, reserving all the good things for his own table, his own enjoyment, the enjoyment of the people. Right, the, the guy who had just told them not to eat honey and put them under this, this vow. Don't, you know, don't eat honey. We're in the middle of warfare. Don't restore yourself. Has now gotten a command from the Lord to devote everything to the band and then he takes all the good stuff to himself. The best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, all that was good, the despised and the worthless, he destroyed. Now his excuse for it was that he was going to sacrifice. But think about one one final, final application of this. Consider yourself and consider the ways that you may um, use what God has supplied to you for your own honor rather than for His honor. Right? To sort of give to Him by halves. To obey Him by halves. Consider your use of money. Right? Consider your use of money. Um... Has money helped you to honor yourself or has it helped you to honor God? Um, Consider also your use of time. What do you spend your time on? Is your time spent honoring yourself or honoring God? And any time spent not honoring God is time spent honoring yourself. Building your kingdom, building your business, building your house, but whatever it may be, um, could it be that God, God would be pleased with a tithe even of your time for His honor? Um, consider the use of your thoughts. Think about how you continually build yourself up and honor yourself in your own thoughts rather than honoring God with your meditations. What do you meditate on? Do you meditate on your own awesomeness or the awesomeness of the Lord? Right? Your own ego, your own emotional life, or do you meditate on the glory of God and and come outside of yourself, in a sense? Um, What about the use of the gifts that God has given to you? The intellect, the energy, the... Um, the spiritual gift. Do you use that to honor yourself as Saul did at this point? Or do you use those gifts to honor God, honestly? Your time, your money, your thoughts, your gifts. I mean, there, there are other things we could add to this, this list. What have we reserved for ourselves to, this, to the dishonor of God? What things have you reserved to yourself? 
taken from the spoil that God has told, um, taken um, and not devoted to him, not followed the commands of God. That's what stands out to me in this, in this passage, in, in Samuel's actions, right? Are you willing to only give the despised and worthless things of your life to God? Not your primary energy, not your primary focus, not the primary balance of your time. You'll give him the, the off-scourings, right? You'll give him the, the last minute of the day. You may give him some time in the morning, but if it's too busy, you'll have the coffee for sure, but not the Lord. Right? You'll just leave off prayer. You'll leave off reading. You'll lead off glorifying God. Um, I, I mean... We all know this experience, but but this is this is um, this is to follow Saul and not to follow our Savior Jesus, who would go off by himself and pray. And Jesus had no reason to pray; he was God. I mean, you know what I mean when I'm saying that he did have reason to pray, but you have more reason. To you have more reason to give your time to God. You have more reason around you. In a sense. Right? But Jesus was always about the work of his Father. Every minute of every day, all the time that he had, all the gifts that he was given, all, all of his thoughts were absorbed in glorifying God. And here is Saul, the opposite of that, not willing to obey, keeping what's good to himself and giving and enacting the will of God, which is to devote to the band with the junk of his life. Junk. The junk they had taken. Don't give God your worst. Don't give God your worst. Don't give him the afterthoughts. Go to him first. Make him the center. Serve him first. There's so much more in this passage. We'll get to it. I'll stop there. Let us pray. Father, we were convicted by your word that, that we have sought to honor ourselves. We, we, we orient our whole lives around bringing honor, bringing boasts into our lives, boasting in our our this and that, boasting in our own strength, boasting in our, our, uh, our history, our backgrounds, boasting in where we're from, boasting in, in uh, bank accounts, boasting just a bunch of blathering boasting that does not glorify you. And Father, it, it, it reveals to us our, our, uh, our loves, so, Father, we pray that you would grant to us repentance, that we would give you the first fruits, that we would give you what is best, that we would not, not give our best time to ourselves, that we would live sacrificially as your son did, that we would serve others and not ourselves first. Father, that we would consider others better than ourselves, that we would... Um, that we would not grow weary in, in serving others and doing good. Oh, Father, we, we pray that, that you would bring to mind this example of Saul, 
his unwillingness to obey. It was not his delight to obey you. It was his delight to serve himself. And for that, the kingdom was torn from him. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be sobered by this. To the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.